Thank you, Doug, and hello again, everybody. I noticed after the mention of President Kennedy this morning, there was later a mention of the grassy knoll. And I thought that you have to be a little bit over 60, at least, to know where you were and what you were doing when you heard about what happened in Dallas on November 22nd, 1963. Most of you know Kevin Ferguson. I know he's been up here a number of times. Maybe about a year ago, I spoke at the funeral for his sister down in North Missouri. And as arrangements were being made for that funeral, Kevin was informing me about various branches of his family, and he told me that I may have gone to school with some of his cousins, Joyce Ferguson and Neil Ferguson. So I got out my yearbooks from junior high and high school, and sure enough, there was Joyce Ferguson in all six of my yearbooks. We graduated from high school together. I don't know if we ever met in high school. On the night I graduated from high school, they lined us up in the way they wanted us, and I sat by a girl that night that I'd never seen before and never saw afterward, but we graduated from high school together after at least three years together in the same schoolhouse. That's what happens in big schools. I like little ones better, I think, but I graduated with hundreds and hundreds of people. So I graduated with Kevin Ferguson's cousin, Joyce, so I took my yearbooks to the funeral, and at the funeral dinner, I got them out because uh, Joyce didn't think she'd ever seen me either, but she said, let's see your yearbook. She thought maybe she'd recognize the way I used to look. But I don't look a thing like that now. But while the funeral dinner was unfolding around us, Joyce and I were back in high school. She has kept up much better than I have with the people. She knew who had died and what people were doing. It was it was very interesting to me. But the, the thing that struck me most of all, and the reason I'm telling you this, is that we both knew precisely what class we were in and what was going on in that class when the announcement came over the intercom that President Kennedy had been assassinated in Dallas on that November day. We both knew precisely. I was at an impressionable age when that happened, and so I did look into it all as I saw it unfold over the past almost 58 years. If you're old enough, you may very well remember where you were, and you'll remember the deep collective emotions of that time. The JFK assassination is the most prodigiously and intensively investigated murder in the history of the world, bar none. There's an enormous amount of evidence pertaining to it, and yet, really, it's a very simple crime. A guy in a window shoots a guy in an open car. And were it not for the prominence of the victim, that would have been the story, and a trial, if there had been one, wouldn't have lasted more than two or three hours. Simple. But because of the prominence of the victim, and because there is a sense that there must be symmetry in the world. You kill somebody that important. There must be something equal on the other side to bring about that death. There's all kinds of ideas that have developed for a variety of reasons. Let me just share some facts with you. After 58 years, nobody can challenge these five facts. 
Not one weapon other than Oswald's rifle has ever been found and linked in any way to the assassination. Not one bullet other than the three fired from Oswald's rifle has ever been found and linked to the assassination. No person other than Oswald has ever been connected by evidence in any way to the assassination. No evidence has ever surfaced linking Oswald to any of the major groups suggested by many as being behind the assassination. And no evidence has ever been found showing that any person or group framed Oswald for the murder. And yet, and yet, I meet people on a regular basis who claim that the CIA did it, or the FBI did it, or the Secret Service did it, or the Dallas police did it, or the mafia did it, or Lyndon Johnson was behind it. That's my wife's favorite. (laughs) Or the KGB was behind it, or Castro did it. Sometimes what we want to believe, sometimes what we think there was motivation for, affects what we do believe. I was down in Dallas a year or two ago, passing through, and met a man who adamantly argued that J.D. Tippett, and that was the officer that Oswald shot just a few minutes after the assassination, that he was on the grassy knoll and shot the president from there. Well... If somebody did fire from the grassy knoll, they missed the whole car and everybody in it, and we never found the bullet. My point is that although we all have the same evidence, and I've seen this evidence unfold over 58 years, although we've all got the same evidence, whatever their motivation, people spin their own narratives about what happened. And instead of reaching the conclusion that the evidence demands that Oswald killed Kennedy and acted alone, it's just more fun to believe in the grassy knoll. And it's much more lucrative to write a book about it. I use this as an illustration because I've seen the whole thing develop just during the last 58 years. But when it comes to religion, even though many people acknowledge the authority of the Bible, We've all got the same evidence. People develop their own narratives about what we should conclude from the Bible. And they've had 2,000 years now to develop those. So even on so simple a question as who will be saved, we find that this is true. Everywhere I go, I have people saying to me, well, you know, really, there are many ways to God, and we're all going to the same place. Because it doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you're sincere. And once in grace, always in grace. And salvation is by faith only. You hear that everywhere you go when you talk with people. It's kind of amazing when you think that we all have the same evidence. Those people carry around the same Bible you do. And yet we come to these markedly different conclusions. We in the churches of Christ have always tried and we continue to try to be as biblical as we can and to let the Bible speak for itself. So I want to give you this afternoon, just for a little while, some basic truths from the Bible and think in terms of where that evidence leads us. Many times we're perceived as narrow and people will ask us, do you think you're the only ones going to heaven? That's a question that generates a lot of strong emotion and it started a lot of arguments and closed a lot of minds. It can be asked in such a way or with such an attitude as to be a foolish question that the Apostle Paul said we're to avoid because they cause strife. 
in 1 Timothy 6, 3 and 4, and 2 Timothy 2, 22 and 23. Sometimes when somebody asks me, do you think you're the only ones going to heaven, I ask them, what difference does it make what I think? Does my opinion alter reality? Does my desire alter reality? My opinion won't help with anything. But on the other hand, this is a Bible question. The disciples asked, who then can be saved? In Matthew 19, verse 25. We're supposed to be, as has already been pointed out this weekend, ready to give an answer always about our hope, 1 Peter 3.15. A question like this invites discussion about the church, about salvation, about heaven, and it is appropriate to discuss. Luke 34 Luke 24, 32. It's appropriate to investigate, Acts 17, verse 11. It's appropriate to reason together, Isaiah 1, 18. And especially this is true concerning matters of the soul. How else can we prove all things and hold fast that which is good? 1 Thessalonians 5, 21. So I want to just set forth some basic Bible truths. I want to give you scripture for them. I'm not going to be turning to these. I won't even be quoting most of them. You don't need to try to turn to them because it won't really be possible. I just want to give a sense of what the evidence is from the Bible about who is going to be saved. And I don't want us to get off on narratives like the investigators of the Kennedy assassination have done. Let's just go down the line with the evidence that's really in the Bible. First of all, God wants everybody to be saved. This is incontestable. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. He will have all men to be saved and to come unto a knowledge of the truth. That's what God wants. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God does not favor any nation or group or gender or race or individual. God loves all equally and God loves all completely. John 3.16 Jesus died for all to be saved. John 3, 17, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15. And grace is available to all. Titus 2, verse 11. The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men. Heaven has room for all. Revelation 21, verses 11 through 27 in figurative language sets forth the idea that it's a big place. It could handle a great multitude of people. And the Lord knows them that are his. Second Timothy chapter two, verse 19. Since the Lord knows them that are his, not a single person who is in a saved condition on the last day is going to be lost. As savior, Jesus Christ is the one who declares who, when, and where he saves. First Thessalonians 5.9. And again Titus 2.11. Jesus will judge on the last day. John 5.22. The house of God will be judged. As well as those who do not obey the gospel. First Peter 4.17 and 18. And also Second Thessalonians chapter 1. Now while you and I inevitably must make judgments and indeed are told to judge righteous judgment, John 7:24, we must not judge unnecessarily, unfairly, or unlovingly, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. God's word is our soul, soul guide. S-O-L-E-S-O-U-L. Soul, soul guide. 
Matthew 4, 4, Psalm 73, verse 24. And God's word gives our blueprint for the church. Building the church as Jesus built it. Exodus chapter 39, verses 42 and 43 says, Make all things according to the pattern shown thee in the mount. And if the church is the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man, then the analogy is complete. What we have in the Bible is the final authority in religion. Proverbs 19, verse 21. Scripture, this evidence is open to all to read, to understand, and to obey and be saved. John 5.39, Hebrews 5.9. Private opinions did not go into the making of it, 2 Peter 1.20 and 21, and private interpretations are not to be taken out of it. What this book says to one, it says to all, it's universal. It's not a matter of, well, what does that scripture mean to you? It's a question of what does that scripture mean to God? What is the context and what do the words convey? Really, we're talking about how big do we draw the circle. And it is possible to draw the circle too small. We must not shut others out of the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 23, verse 13. We must not require more than Jesus requires. Matthew 23, verse 4. We must not bind anything that the apostles did not bind. Matthew chapter 16, verse 19. Matthew 18, verse 18. We must not take away other people's Christian liberty. Acts 15, 1. 2 Corinthians 3, 17. Galatians 5, 1. In matters of opinion, we must follow after the things which make for peace. Romans 14, verse 19. So it is possible to draw the circle too small. It's also possible to draw the circle too big. Salvation is not universal. Many, many, many believe that all religions are just different roads to the same place. We hear this over and over again. It's like there are different paths up the same mountain and all the paths go to the top of the mountain. You've heard that yourself many times, I'm quite certain. And this appeals to a culture where toleration is a chief virtue. But it's a mistake to believe that a civil right to believe anything makes every belief equally valid. It does not. It does not make every belief equally true. Jesus taught us through the Apostle John to stay in bounds. 2 John 9 through 11. He taught us not to untie what the Apostles tied. Matthew 16, 19. He taught us not to think of man above what is written. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. And strange as it sounds in our time, there are not a thousand ways to heaven. Strange as it sounds in our time, there are not even two ways to heaven. Jesus is the exclusive route, the way, the truth, the life. John 14, 6. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Jesus will separate the righteous from the unrighteous, as a shepherd divides the sheep from the goats. Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. And he's going to use obedience to his words as the standard for that. Matthew 7, 21 through 27. Not everybody who claims allegiance to Jesus is going to make it to heaven. Matthew 7, 21. 
The real question becomes then, not where do you draw the circle or where do I draw the circle, but where does God draw the circle? That's the real question. Whatever His Word says is right. Psalm 33, verse 4, 2 Timothy 3, 16. And ultimately, nothing else matters but what God says about it. You and I could debate it all afternoon. We could take a vote and see who got the most votes, who had the most popular opinion, and what difference would it make? It might be quite misleading were we to do that. But God's immutable counsel will stand even though the whole earth set themselves in array against him. Let God be true, but every man a liar. Psalm 2, verses 1 through 4, John 3, 36, John 12, 48, and on and on. Who does God put into the circle of the saved? He tells us that the body of Christ will be saved. And that Christ is the Savior of the body. John 5, Ephesians 5, verse 23. That shows who the Savior is, and it shows where he saves. God placed all spiritual blessings in one location, that is, in Christ. Ephesians 1, verse 3. We are saved by His blood, Ephesians 1, 7, in His body. But can't people obtain salvation some other place too? Consider the story of the great global flood. Everybody that was in the ark was saved. Everybody who was not in the ark was lost. To be saved, we must enter into Christ, 2 Timothy 2, verse 10. And the church will be saved. The church began on the day of Pentecost after Christ's resurrection, Acts chapter 2. 3,000 people were baptized on its first day, Acts 2.41, and thousands more in the weeks, months, and years that followed, Acts 4.4, Acts 5.14, Acts 6.7, Acts 9.42, Acts 16.5, and on and on. The final sentence of the second chapter of Acts says, that the Lord added to the church daily, such as should be saved. Verse 47. Scripture nowhere records that sinners joined the church. Rather, God added each obedient, obedient sinner, uh, each obedient believer to it. Salvation and membership in the universal church occur simultaneously. God puts each person he saves in the same place. That is, in the church. He doesn't put anybody else into the church. It's impossible for a saved person to be anywhere else but in the church. The church is the saved, it's all the saved, and it's none but the saved. One cannot be saved outside of the church. The church is not the Savior, but it is the saved. We cannot follow Christ without obeying Him. Luke 6.46, John 14.15 He commands baptism. Mark chapter 16, verse 16, Acts 2.38, you know other scriptures. If a person follows Jesus, he will be baptized. Acts 18, verse 8. And if a person is baptized for the remission of their sins into Christ, that person will be added to his church. The church of God, also called the church of the living God, is going to be saved. Acts 20, verse 28, 1 Timothy 3, verse 5, and verse 15. God planned the church, Ephesians 3, 8 through 10. He gave his son's life to purchase it, John 3, 16, Acts 20, 28, and he provides for it, 
Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. So it's called the Church of God in the Bible. But that does not refer to the denomination that wears that name today, which dates back only a little more than a 100 years and differs in doctrine from the original Church of God. The Church of the Firstborn ones will be saved. The Church of Christ will be saved. Early churches were called Churches of Christ. Romans 16, 16, Hebrews 12, 23 talks about the Church of the Firstborn ones. Christ purchased this church with his blood, Acts 20, 28, Ephesians 5, 25. It is his bride, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, and Ephesians 5, 27. And he is its head, Colossians 1, 18. This church belongs to Christ, Matthew 16, 18. So it is Christ's church, the church of Christ. All of these phrases, body of Christ, church, church of Christ, Church of God, all refer to the same group. So this is not attributing salvation to multiple groups. Rather, it refers to the same group in multiple ways. The early church of the Lord had no one exclusive name, title, or designation. Rather, a number of designations were used to apply to it. But Jesus Christ established only one church. Matthew 16, 18 and Acts 2, 47. There is one body, Ephesians 4, 4. There is but one body, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 20. Those in Christ are in his body. Those in his body are in the church, Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, and Ephesians 2, 16. Nobody is in the church of God that is not also in the church of Christ. Many believe that... All denominations come together to compose the one universal church. Well, the word church is found 117 times in the New Testament. And these usages fall into two different categories. First of all, there is the universal church and then there are local churches. There's not a single verse that refers to a denomination wearing the name of a man or calling itself after some religious function or some religious office. Martin Luther is a great hero of mine. I've read at least two biographies of him, and I wouldn't mind reading another one if I thought it was good. But Martin Luther was not crucified for me. I wasn't baptized in the name of Martin Luther. So I would not be in a Lutheran church. Even Martin Luther didn't want to be in a Lutheran church. He didn't like people calling themselves Lutherans. He knew more about the Bible than that. The Lord's Church is not a denomination, nor is it all of the denominations combined. Anytime the word church is used in the universal sense, a singular noun is used, the church. And that's found 70 times in the New Testament. The plural always refers to local congregations who were united, unified, and teaching and practicing the same things, unlike the denominational world. 1 Corinthians 1.10, John 17, verses 20 and 21, Philippians 3.16, Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. When we get that question, do you think you're the only ones who are going to go to heaven? Do you think you're the only ones who will be saved? Do you think the Church of Christ are the only people that are going to heaven? What's meant by that term, Church of Christ? I don't believe that a denomination called Church of Christ is any more likely to be saved than a denomination of some other name. But if by the term Church of Christ, we're referring to Christ's church that we read about in the Bible, then that is a different question. 
That is the group that is divinely assembled. Acts 2.47. That's the group that God puts every saved person into. And it's impossible for a saved person to be anywhere else but there. My desire is to stay out of any denomination and to be a part of Christ's original church. His church does exist on this earth today. It is findable. You and I, young or old, must never fall into the trap of believing or of letting go unchallenged the idea that one church is as good as another. I know it sounds broad-minded to say it and to believe it. It seems modern to go that direction. But it just doesn't make common sense, and it sure doesn't make scriptural sense. On the personal, physical level, we don't think that way. You don't tell the teller at the bank, just deposit my paycheck in any account because one account's as good as another. Nobody says that. Nobody goes to the pharmacist and said, just give me anything because one drug's as good as another. We don't think that way. Then why is it when we come to the most important investigation any human being can ever make that we suddenly get all broad about it? We get all... Uh, fearful of offending somebody about it. And we get to thinking that just anything will do because God is a God of love. It just doesn't make any sense. The church of Satan is surely not good. I knew a lady in a church of Satan in Kansas City. They met down on Ninth Street and they had a sign that said Church of Satan. It existed at that time. I don't know if it exists now. We studied for quite some time, it didn't see too many things alike. The church of Satan cannot be good. A church with a charlatan preacher fleecing its members of their retirement funds is surely not good. A church that denies the deity of Jesus Christ is not good. A church that turns a blind eye to its leaders abusing children is not good. A church that endorses sinful activities is not good. A church that teaches false doctrine is not good. You and I have no authority from God whatsoever to set up a congregation to do whatever it pleases and call that the church. If we wanted to do that, we could make the church the most popular organization in any town. I guarantee you. If we just didn't care what we did. But the church that God cares about, must conform to God's pattern. Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. The church that matters, the church that's right, must be a franchise of the original church. You can go into a McDonald's, any place in the world, and you order from the same menu, they cook from the same recipes, they answer to the same code of policies. Each is a franchise of the original organization. You and I can't go over here on the corner and put up golden arches and call our restaurant McDonald's and serve Sonic hamburgers out of it. It won't work. You'd be shut down tonight. I was over in Manila one time, and uh, I'll just tell you a back story. I, I, when I was 16 years old, I worked for a donut shop in Raytown, Missouri. It was called Mr. Donut. There used to be quite a lot of them around, many franchises of it. Worked there uh, quite a while when I was in my teens in high school. And I had been of the opinion for years later when I was in Manila that Mr. Donut had shut down and there, there weren't any more. Uh, later, I've heard of others. But I was in Manila, and the lady of the house that I was staying in 
came walking in one day with a box full of Mr. Donut Donuts. And the thing that amazed me about it was they tasted exactly like the ones we used to make in Raytown. Here we were on the other side of the world. But the donuts were the same because the recipe and the materials were the same. They were fixed the same way. That's what we're talking about here. With the scriptures as the sole authority for doctrine and practice, a church must observe all things that Jesus instructed. Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. So as we conclude this, we'll ask, how do we identify Christ's church today? I don't know the minds of those who are present. There may be somebody here who's grappling with this issue now. Maybe a young person who wonders about this. You know what you've been told? Don't know whether to believe it or not. The Bible may seem confusing. What do you do? How do you identify? Maybe you have friends who go to some church that's more entertaining, more interesting than what we have here. How do we identify Christ's church today? Take any church that you find up and down this road or any other and compare it to the church that you read about in the Bible. Anybody with a normal brain can do that. Anybody with an unjaundiced eye, an unbiased mind, can rather easily do that. Compare any church to what you find about the church in the Bible. Is it organized the same way the New Testament church was? New Testament church organization is very simple. I think probably every, even any, every young person here probably knows what it is. Go to any church up and down the road, anywhere in the city, and see what their organization is. Is it the same as what you have here, or is it different? That is an important point. It's key, because organization matters to God. Is that church using a biblical name or description to refer to itself? Some churches do, but more churches don't. Does that church worship in a scriptural manner? Does that church accurately teach about salvation? How many places are you going to find that teach baptism for the remission of sins as taught in the Bible? I'm sorry to say you won't find very many. And that's a telling mark right there. Does this church in question follow a scriptural mission? When you've answered questions like that, and maybe a dozen or two dozen more questions along those lines, you're going to have a pretty good understanding of whether that church under consideration is a biblical church or not. And then you have a decision to make. But when we consider the question, who is going to heaven, we can safely say that those who follow the Bible will make it. We of the Church of Christ are trying to be the New Testament church, and we would invite everybody to read your Bible, ask questions, compare, and investigate And let's all go to heaven together.